Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas. And thank you for coming to finishing the task. You know, I was telling Paul backstage, Saddleback gets to host a lot of different conferences over the year on an annual basis. This is not the biggest conference, but it is by far the most important conference. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. There is no more important conference than the one we're in right now because of the topic of fulfilling the Great Commission. And that means you're the most important people we're gonna have on this campus all year because you're at the most important conference. And I know many of you represent major efforts. And when I say major, it doesn't mean big, it just means major. Major efforts to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's what it's all about. And so I'm humbled that you're here today. I'm, I'm honored that you're here today. I would rather do this conference than any other conference that we do because it's the one that's gonna make the most difference of all the things. So th really, thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, December's a busy month, as you know. It's a busy month for anybody involved in ministry. And, but the fact is, I love the fact that we end the year talking about what's most important of all. And so before we, uh, we actually begin, I want to lead you in prayer. Let me pray for you. Would you bow your heads? Father, I look out on these faces, so many, many dear friends for many, many years, people who've been co-workers in the battle for a long time. We looked at the faces that were on that table when we were all there together in, uh, in Amsterdam so many years ago, and how this whole vision was birthed some of them, like Avery Willis, have gone on into heaven and, and others uh, who faithfully lived and served and left a legacy. And we want to be found worthy of those in that long line of spreading the good news, making disciples, growing churches, deepening your impact on the world for the greater global glory of God. And Lord, everybody's here. We've all got the same com confidence in your word. We all have the same commitment to your mission. We all have the same Holy Spirit in our lives. We all have the same Bible that we teach. We're all part of a family of God that's gonna go on and on and on and on forever. And yet we know you've said, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I know right now, uh, depending on the week, we all have ups and downs, highs and lows, tough times and easier times. And together we pray for those who are going through a tough time right now. They love you, they're serving you, they are committed to you, but they may just be tired, or they may be discouraged, or they may be overwhelmed by all that they have to do. I thank you that they took time out to spend the uh, these days with us so that together iron can sharpen iron. Lord, help us to all be teachable. You have said that you, re you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So Lord, I humble myself before you. I'm gonna ask you to teach me. Lord, I know I can learn from anybody if I just know the right questions. And I pray that we will end this few days together, ask the right questions. Because if we don't ask the right questions, we'll not get the right answers. And if we don't have the right answers, we don't get the right strategy. And if we don't have the right strategy, we waste time and money and energy. So help us 
to be wise. You, you said if any man lacks wisdom to ask of God, and so I'm asking. I'm asking that you give every single one of us this week uh, new wisdom, fresh insight. Help us to learn from each other. Lord, we know it's wise to learn from experience, but it's, it's actually wiser to learn from the experiences of others because we don't have time to learn it all from experience. So teach me, teach all of us this week as we talk about the most important task of, of finishing the task. And so I humbly ask your blessing on every person here. For those who are tired, give them strength. For those whose bodies are aching, uh, we ask for healing. For those whose minds are distracted, help us to set our thoughts on you. For those who are worried or frustrated or in any other emotion, Lord, you are the Lord of all emotions. And I ask today that when we go through this day, at the end of this day, we'll have more energy than when we started it. Because we've been energized by your spirit, we've been energized by fellowship, we've been energized by new thoughts and ideas and challenged. And I'm asking you to do all this, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Not because of what we do, but because of who, what Jesus has already done on the cross 2,000 years ago. And even as we celebrate Christmas, we pray that the word will become flesh in our lives. That we would not simply teach the gospel, but we would live the gospel. That our lives would incarnate Christ-likeness. Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to think like you. I want to talk like you. I want to, I want to uh, work and act and respond and be more like Jesus in my giving, in my sharing, in my serving. And that is the prayer of all of us, that we would be more like you. And I pray now that you would give us a sweet spirit of your fellowship, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do look out on you with a lot of love. Have I told you lately that I love you? I really do. I really do love you, and I, I thank you for giving your life to the most important thing. God has never made a person he doesn't love. God has never made a person he doesn't have a purpose for. God has never made a person he doesn't want in heaven. I don't believe God's made a person Jesus didn't die for. And the greatest, the greatest thing in life was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And the second greatest thing in life is when those of us who know that share it with other people. Now, I, I welcome you to finishing the task. I mean, I'm really glad you're here. As I said, this is the most important conference that we ever are a part of uh, here at Saddleback because it's about working to fulfill the Great Commission. And really, in many ways, finishing the task is built on some values that we all share in common. And it's, it's not new, it's not fresh, it's not innovative. Um, a, a lot of stuff in life is pretty obvious, but we still have to review it. It's important to review. It, it's easy to forget stuff you know. Everybody agree with that? 
It's easy to forget stuff. It's easy to, you know, as a pastor, as a church leader, as a mission board executive, uh, leading a ministry of of, uh, evangelism, discipleship, whatever you do, uh, you you know everything we're going to talk about this week, but it helps to just review, refresh, renew, and encourage. And so let me just start with uh, some pillars of, of finishing the task. I, I, I would call these, the, these are values that we, we all know, we all hold in common. Uh, the fact that nothing matters more than getting the good news to the people who don't know it. That's, that matters most. Uh, it, it's why we're still, have you ever th- thought about the fact, why does God leave you here on earth the moment you're saved? With all the suffering, sorrow, sadness, sickness, temptations, sins, why doesn't the moment you are saved, why doesn't God just zap you into heaven and, and save you from all, all of the rest of it? Well, I've said many, for many, many years, there are only two things you can't do in heaven. You know, God has five purposes for your life. You can worship in heaven. In fact, you're going to do a lot of it. Uh, you can fellowship in heaven. You're going to do a lot of that. You can grow in heaven. You're not going to stay the same in heaven. You're going to keep growing throughout eternity. You certainly can serve, serve Jesus in heaven. There are only two things that you and I can't do in heaven. Uh, we can't sin, uh, and we can't witness to unbelievers. Which of those two do you think Jesus leaves us here to do? It's kind of obvious. So um, if I am not actively sharing the good news with other people, God should just go ahead and kill me. Take me on to heaven. Because I can do all these other things in heaven, but I cannot share the good news with unbelievers because they're not going to be there. So nothing matters more than getting the good news to everybody. And this whole finishing the task concept is important because History depends on it. You might write this verse down, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's about as clear, that's the only sign for the second coming you really need. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world as a witness to every nation, and then the end will come. Jesus isn't coming back until everybody he knows is going to step across the line, steps across the line. And the moment that person steps across the line, bam, we're out of here. We're out of here. So if you want Jesus to come back sooner, finish the task. It's real simple. Now you know that, I know that, but we need to be reminded of it. Finish the task. You know, it's interesting to me, you know, some people are really, they love to study prophecy, and prophecy is an important thing. It's in, in Scripture. More, do you know there's more in the Old Testament about the second coming than there is about the first coming of Christ? So prophecy is important, but it's interesting, the very last question before Jesus ascends back to heaven that, he, he asks, that he's asked by the disciples is a prophecy question. Lord, when are you going to restore Israel? In other words... When are you going to wrap this thing up? When are you going to do all this? And I love Jesus' response to a prophecy question. And in Acts chapter 1, he says there, uh, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Okay. But, he says, 
You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. They wanted to talk about prophecy. Jesus wanted to talk about evangelism. And when they were asked a prophecy question, Lord, when, when, when's, what's the times of season? Well, Jesus had already said in Matthew 25, no man knows the day nor the hour, neither the angels nor the Son, but only the Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, I don't even know when I'm coming back in Matthew 25. Neither the angels nor the Son. If Jesus didn't know when he was coming back, I'm not gonna figure it out. So I can put away all my charts. But it's interesting, they wanna talk about prophecy. When are you gonna restore Israel? And he says, it's not, that's none of your business. It's none of your business. It's not for you to know the time of season. But, he says, let's talk about evangelism. Why? Because this gospel shall be preached into all the world as a witness to every nation, and then the end shall come. That's why this is the most important conference, because nothing matters more than getting the good news to everyone. All of history rests on finishing the task. Second value, second pillar. Nothing matters more. Second one is, is this. Every tribe matters. That's a, that's a key value that we have in finishing the task as a coalition and in partnership. And whether you're in church planning or Bible translation or in direct evangelism or whatever ministry you're in, every tribe matters. You know that phrase, every tribe, is, um, it's used at least four times in the book of Revelation. At least four times, every tribe. And the Bible tells us in uh, Revelation 7, I think it's verse 9, 7, 9, when John gets a vision of heaven, he says, you know, and I, I looked and there before me was this large multitude. And you one could not count. They're all standing around the throne of God. And he said they were there from every nation, every language, every people, and every tribe. Now, you wouldn't be here if you didn't take that verse literally. I take it literally. That God says somehow there's gonna be somebody from every tribe in heaven one day. But as you know, when we started this whole thing years back, that there were at least 3,600 tribes with no Bible, no believer, and no body of Christ. They're all small tribes. No Bible, no believer, no body of Christ. What is the finishing the task? Getting a Bible, a believer, and a body of Christ in that tribe. A Bible, a believer, and a body of Christ in that tribe. And, and that is finishing the task, and every tribe matters. God has never made a person, as I said, that he doesn't love, that he doesn't want in heaven. Every tribe matters. A third value, that we have in finishing the task is we're gonna have to cooperate to get this job done. I can't do it by myself, you can't do it by yourself. There is no organization, there is no denomination, there is no ministry, there is no church or even group of churches that can finish the task on their own. This job is so big, God made it so big, we have to unify. We have to work together. We have to say, okay, what part of the wall are you building? As Nehemiah would say. And, and, and if you build your part of the wall and I build our part of the wall and somebody else builds their part of the wall, and we, we eventually get the wall built. 
and, and, and no part is unnecessary. If you build a wall around the city and you leave a 12-foot gap, guess what? The rest of the wall is worthless. It's worthless. So when, when, people, when people say, well, my ministry doesn't matter to, the, to God, that is so wrong. Never confuse prominence with significance. What you're doing may not be prominent, but it is definitely significant. Because if you don't build your part of the wall, there's a gap there and the enemy gets through. Do you know the difference between prominence and significance? My, um, my nose is prominent. It's not significant. I have a big nose. It's, it's a very big nose. It just sticks out there. When I, when I walk up to a door my, door, my nose gets to the door a day before the rest of my body does. It's prominent, but it's not significant. I could cut off my nose and still live happily ever after. I don't need it to be happy. I don't need it to live. It's nice. It's quite sexy, but it's, it's not necessary. It's prominent, but it's not significant. On the other hand, inside me and inside you, are some things you will never see. You'll never see your liver. You'll never see your lung. You'll, you'll never see your heart. You'll never see your spleen. You'll never see uh, you know, uh, all of those internal organs. They're significant. They're not prominent. And, and, and sometimes when you're working and when you're serving, you know, I, my first church, I planted my first church when I was 15 years old. I grew up in a little town of less than 500 people and I started the church in my barn, my dad's barn. And I went out and I found a bunch of used um, theater seats and set them up in my barn and grew that church to about 60, 60 people. Now, it's far different than the church I pastored. In fact, I've pastored and I've planted in four different situations, rural, urban, suburban, and international. First church I planted, like I said, when I was a teenager, it was a rural church, 500 people in the entire town. And then the second church I helped plant was in Nagasaki, Japan, internationally. Then it came back, then I worked in inner city LA where I was trying to reach gangs in a 68% Hispanic language. And uh, inner city, urban, very different than rural, very different than international. And then in 1980, I started Saddleback. I was 25 years old when we started Saddleback. Suburban church. So I've done urban, suburban, rural, and, and, and from the very start, my goal was simply to build a sending church, to be a mission-sending station, because every tribe matters. And we have to co cooperate to finish the task. None of us can complete this assignment on our own. Ecclesiastes, you might write this down. If you've got notes, they're passing them out right now. Anybody not have notes yet? Everybody, everybody's got, okay, here's a table right here, doesn't have notes, thanks. Uh, let's read this verse together with great enthusiasm, okay? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. Now two can stand back to back and conquer, and three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That is the value of a team. Your ideas are good ideas, my ideas are good ideas, but our ideas are great ideas. And together we can do things that 
nobody else would be ever able to do on their own, you, me, or anybody else. I spent a lot of time overseas. I spent most of the last 10 years in little villages you've never heard of. And um, I tell them, you know, you know, one drop of rain doesn't make any difference. But a million drops of rain can turn a desert into a garden. My ministry alone can't make that big of a difference. Your ministry alone can't make that big of a difference. But our ministries together can turn a desert into a, into a garden. So these are pillars uh, of finishing the task. Nothing matters more than getting the good news to everybody. Every tribe matters. We have to cooperate to finish the task. And then the fourth one would be this, that the church is the only thing that's going to last forever. The church is the only thing that's going to last forever. The called out, God's family, his flock, his body, his bride. We are, we are pro-church. You hear people all the time say, oh, I love Jesus, just don't like the church. Well, that's nonsense. You can't love Jesus and hate his body. And be our, our, our his bride. If I said to you, I like you, but I, I can't stand your wife, you'd be offended. Jesus is offended. I like you, but you got an ugly body. Jesus is offended. The problem today is too many people use the church and don't love it. The Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. The only way you're ever going to be like Christ, the only way I'm ever going to be like Christ, is by falling in love with the church. It's the only thing that's going to last. And, and I love what Bonhoeffer talks about in Life Together. He says, you know what? Having an ideal vision of the church is actually harmful because then you start being critical of the church as it is. God wants you to love the real church, not the ideal church. God wants you to love the real church with all of its faults, with all of its flaws, with all of its mistakes, with all of its highs and lows and out of date and wrong theology, God still says, I love the church and I died for it. And you should, who did Jesus die for? Not the ideal, he died for the real. He died for me, with my habits and my hurts and my hangups, and he died for you in the same way. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my ministry. No, <laughs> I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, those are all obvious, but we still need to review them. Now, what I'd like to do in this first session uh, is just to kind of set us up is to tell you a few things that ask, cause us to ask some questions. And what I'm gonna do is share my journey and give you a little update on our small piece of the puzzle. And then I wanna talk about why, uh, why together we really have to mobilize thousands of churches. I'm talking about local churches. I know, I know many of you have major ministries and, and, and mission boards, and I, I 100% thank God for you. But I want us to talk about why we will never have enough professional missionaries to get the job done. Most churches today are like a football game. 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest. 22,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> Napoleon once pointed to a map of China. He says, there lies a sleeping giant, and if it ever awakes, it'll shake the world. And I point to local churches 
and say, there lies the sleeping giant. And if we're going to finish the task, it's going to take more than the ministries in this room. It's going to take tens of thousands of churches because that's where all the believers are. They're in churches. And they're sitting there, sitting, soaking, and souring, and not serving and not sharing. And so, to finish the task, we have to mobilize local churches. And I want to talk about why that's important, and then uh, conclude with maybe some suggestions, really some questions, on, uh, to get you thinking about how can we actually get more people involved in this movement that you and I are so deeply and desperately committed to. How many of you are here uh, at finishing the task for the first time? Can I see your hands? Wow, let's welcome these folks. Come on, let's welcome these folks. We are, we are honored to have you, we're glad you're here, we love you, and we, and we thank God for you. Since many of you are here for the first time, let me just go back and share a little bit of my testimony uh, on this. I started Saddleback Church because God shut the door for me to being a missionary to China. Kay and I, my wife, both felt called to foreign missions, and in the 1970s we had studied, prepared, I did a doctorate in missions. And was prepared. I wanted to go to China, and um, and of course that was right in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. There was no way they were going to let an American in, and uh, I had served short term in Japan, and uh, Kay had served served short term in a multicultural church. And when God shut that door, it was the biggest disappointment of my life. I said, Lord, I don't I don't understand it. I mean, when so few people are willing to go overseas, and, and we are, we're, we're ready, we feel called, we're ready to go, and you have shut this door, why won't you let me go? And God said one of the two or three things that turned the trajectory of my life, he said, you're not going to get to be a missionary, but you're going to be a missionary sending church. I've said for years, if you read Purpose Driven Church 20 years ago, in that book I say, you judge a church not on its seating capacity, but on its sending capacity. I said that 25 years ago. Not on its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. You don't judge an army by how many people sit in the mess hall and eat. You judge an army by how many soldiers are out there on the front line actually serving. And so from the very beginning of this church, when I started it with one member, Kay, I preached the first sermon. She said it was too long. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> She's still telling me it's too long, 36 years later. I now have people on, this, on the staff of Saddleback Church. I have about 500 staff in this church. I have people on this staff who were born in this church. I was there the moment they took their first breath. I was there at the hospital. And they're now pastors on this church. But all, all along, the goal has never been to build a crowd. A crowd is not a church. A crowd is not a church. A crowd is not a church. I can teach you how to get a crowd. It's not that hard if you just do the right things. But you have to turn a crowd into a church through a system of discipleship, a systematic, planned program based on how Jesus did it in the three and a half years when he took people from come and see to come and die. All right, that's a whole seminar itself. We won't go into that. But my goal from the beginning 
was that this church would be judged by how many people we've sent out. No church in American history has sent out more people than Saddleback Church. I guarantee you that. I'm, I'm certain of that. Last, in, in, in October, out there in that baptism, on one day I baptized, uh, I, it was 792 got baptized that day, uh, but I actually baptized 600 of them. Um, we passed the 45,000th baptism in Saddleback Church. Okay, that's a lot of non-believers. 45,000 unbelievers have been baptized at Saddleback Church. But the, the fact that I'm proud of, humbly proud of, is the fact that we built, we didn't just bring them in, we built them up. Saddleback is the only church in America that has more people in small groups than on the weekend. On a typical weekend, we'll have anywhere between 26 and 30,000 people. But during the week, I have almost 40,000 people in small group Bible studies, 8,400 small groups in 196 cities of Southern California, from Santa Monica to San Diego. So we bring them in, but we don't leave them there. We build them up, and then we train them. We teach them how, and then we send them out. And Saddleback has sent out 26,869 of our members on mission to 197 countries. That's every country in the world. We have a decade goal every year, I mean every decade, and our decade goal for the 2010s was Jesus said, go make disciples of every nation. And I said, has any church actually ever done that? Has any church ever, I'm talking about one single church, actually gone to every single nation? Now, I know what ta ethne means. I, as I said, I did my doctorate. I know talking about peoples and people groups. But I just thought, has anybody ever just gone to the national, the physical, the political nations? I said, why don't we be the first church in American history and in church history to literally go to every nation? And uh, the church said, why not? Let's go. Well, I didn't even know how many nations there were. <laughs> I had to look it up. You know how many nations there are in the world? There are 197. There are 195 nations in the United Nations. 195 in the United Nations. The only two nations not in the United Nations are uh, Serbia and Taiwan. Even North Korea has, uh, has visitor status. So when it comes to Political nations, there are 197 nations. So we set a goal. Saddleback Church, and we have a thing called the Peace Plan, P-E-A-C-E, -E, plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. So I started sending our members out to plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation in every nation. And we said by the end of 2010, we will have gone to every single nation. And we begin sending them out. First by the thousands, then the 5,000, then 10, then 15,000, then 20,000, then 21, and 22, then 25,000. And on November 18th, um, uh, 2010, we went to Nation 197. Little island in the Caribbean called St. Kitts. It's only 35,000 people, but we weren't gonna leave them out. And so we sent a team there to plant a church, Equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. How do you do that? How do you bring 45,000 people in the front door but send 26,000 out the back door? That's the thing we want to do. you got to have a system. Now, I, uh, when I, I, I moved here to Saddleback in, in 1980. 
no members, no building, didn't know a single person here, no support. Four o'clock in the afternoon, I had finished uh, school, moved from Texas, being a wealthy seminary student, everything piled in half a U-Haul. Got here at four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, it was in the middle of rush hour traffic, which by the way, I, I don't know why we call the slowest time rush hour, because it, everybody's going the slowest. And I remember coming in on, on, on 91 freeway, and it was like 16 lanes across, and it was like a parking lot, and I go, God, you got the wrong guy. What am I doing here? I, I, I'm a country boy. I grew up in a, t a village of 500 people, and you, there's more people on this block of freeway than I grew up with. And we pulled off at four o'clock in the afternoon on El Toro Road. I found the first real estate office I could find. I walked in and I said, hi, my name is Rick Warren. I'm here to start a new church. I'm 25 years old. Uh, I don't have any members. I don't have any building. I don't have any money. I need a place to live. And he just laughed. He said, well, let's see what we can do. You know, where God guides, God provides. Literally, we were gonna spend the night in the truck the first night we got here. We did not even have money for a motel the first night we got here. And it was, that, it was back in those days when you had odd, even gas. Anybody remember that? And you had to stop. Sometimes we had to just stop driving across Arizona because we couldn't get any more gas. Our license plate was odd. And uh, so, to make a long story short, that guy took us to an apartment. Uh, we, we said, sure, we'll take it. He, he, we signed the papers on it. He got us uh, the first month rent-free and nothing down because I didn't have any money to put down. And that man became the first member of Saddleback Church. <laughs> and as I was driving to, uh, to this little apartment, uh, Don Dale was the first. He's still a member here, 36 years later. And I, I said, Don, you go to church anywhere? He goes, no, I hate church. I said, great, you're my first member. <laughs> I said, I'm going to start a church for people who hate church. So we started it the next week in that little apartment. My wife and I and our little girl and Don and his wife and his little girl and one other person and Saddleback began. But from the very beginning, we built into the DNA of this church that we were going to be a sending church. Now there's no sin in being a small church. There's no shame in being a small church. There is a sin and shame in having a small vision. Even if you have 15 members, which I did at one point, it wasn't that long ago, I can still remember it, you still have to care about the whole world. See, most pastors misread Acts 1-8, and they think it says, and you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say and, and, and. It doesn't say in, in, in. It says and, and, and. Many people read it like this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. But that's not what it says. It says and, 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 and. It's not sequential, it's simultaneous. Acts 1-8 is not sequential. First you start in your own Jerusalem, and you build your church up, and once it gets real big, then you go to Judea. And that's, you know, uh, the county around you. And then once you get really start reaching the county, then you go to Samaria. That's the people who are cross-culturally different from you in your own area. Well, you got a bunch of those. And then once you get big enough, you, you go to the whole rest of the world. And a lot of people think that missions, that finishing the task, is a task once you've got your church established. No, 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 no. You gotta put the DNA in the church when you got five people and then 10, and then 15, and then 20, 
You don't have to be a big church to fulfill the Great Commission. You just have to have a Great Commission vision. And, and so, and, 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 not then, then, then. It's not sequential. It is systematic. And so, when, one of the things we have to do to mobilize churches is we have to teach them from the very beginning, begin with the end in mind, and, and you, when you plant the church, you know it's going to go to the whole world. It's going to go to the world. When Jesus told the disciples, go make disciples of every nation, it was physically impossible. They could not go to the whole world. It was physically impossible. There were no planes, trains, automobiles, seafaring boats. They couldn't go to North America. They couldn't go to Latin America. They couldn't go to Australia. But today, in our generation, this is the first generation in history you can go anywhere in the world in 24 hours. If you don't believe that, ask a travel agent. I want to be on top of a you know, mountain in Nepal. They'll have you there in 24 hours. And we had a team that just came back from Nepal, and they said, Rick, we were way up in the Himalayas, and they said, uh, we saw a, saddleback, a little kid in the village wearing a Saddleback T-shirt, and he said, and the other thing is he said, we saw your, your book, Purpose Driven Life. He said, it's all over that country. He said, uh, the two differences, it's photocopied and it's by Ricky Warren. <laughs> and I, I was excited by that. I said, hey, it's being bootlegged. Being bootlegged means it's worth bootlegging. You don't bootleg junk. So I was glad it was being copied. It meant somebody actually think it's, you know, it's got some value to it. But you can go anywhere in the world within 24 hours. And so there is no excuse for a church of 20 people to not be a global church. You gotta have bifocal vision, local and global, or as Bob Roberts calls it, global vision. You gotta be able to see global and local at the same time. And this church, why has Saddleback been blessed so much? Really? It's not like we're better people, we're not. It's not like we're smarter. We're not. It's not like we're, you know, we're more talented. We're certainly not better looking. Why has God blessed this church that now we're in 17 campuses and four continents? We have a Saddleback Berlin a campus. We have a Saddleback Buenos Aires. We have a Saddleback Hong Kong. We have a Saddleback Manila. Every week in this, this church is one church with about 45 services in about 17 different locations. Why did that happen? Because from the very beginning, we were committed to and, 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 and. Not then, 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 then. When God looks down, he goes, there's a church that cares about more than themselves. I don't know another church that's trained more pastors. About a half a million pastors have gone through Purpose Driven Church. 164 countries. When you give yourself away, when you give your ministry away, when you give your church away, God just goes, I'm gonna use that I'm going to bless that church. And so from the very beginning, uh, and then when we launched the peace plan to take on the five giant problems of the world, plant churches, takes on spiritual emptiness, equip servant leaders, takes on you know, corruption, and assist the poor, takes on extreme poverty, care for the sick, pandemic diseases, and educate the next generation, crippling illiteracy. Half the world functionally can't read or write. So we began to do that. And we began to send our, our members out. And honestly, when we did it, here's another key to your ministry. Learn to fail fast. You might write that one down. Learn to fail 
fast. Never call it a failure, call it an experiment. Just try something, a new way to reach a new target group, a new way to reach a new, a, a, a new tr uh, tribe. Just try it. And that doesn't work, you try something else. That doesn't work, you try something else. You don't call it, uh, call it a failure, call it an experiment, or call it an education, because now you learn what doesn't work. Some of us are highly educated. Someday I'll write a book, A Thousand Ways to Not Grow a Church, because I know them all. We tried something, that didn't work. We tried something else, that didn't work. We tried something else, that didn't work. We tried something else. On 99, number 100, we try it, it works. Then we go out and teach a seminar, pretend like we knew what we were doing. Truth is, we're not that smart. We, we just learn by trial and error, and, and we, we learn through failure. And I hope this week you'll not only share the successes you're seeing in your ministry, but I hope you will share your failures, because I'd like to know what doesn't work. As I said, it's wise to learn from experience. It's wiser to learn from the experiences of others. There's no reason all of us have to learn that something doesn't work by doing it ourselves. So if, you know, if I have time, I can share with you all the failures that we've, we've done that don't work. Like we tried 100 different ways in doing a membership class before we figured out a way that worked. We're just not afraid to fail. It's how, it's how you grow. And so, uh, you know, in the early years, we sent out, in the first 4,000 people we sent out, uh, you know, it's kind of like what we called the, um, the, um, uh, the Mercury. Remember when they went to the moon? Uh, there was the Mercury uh, project, and then there was the uh, Gemini project, and then there was the Apollo. Everybody remember that? You know, the Mercury, when, they, when Kennedy in 1963 said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. It's kind of what we're, we're saying here. We're going to reach every tribe. We're going, to, there's going to, we're going to take them all off the list. That's our moonshot. So that every tribe has a Bible believer in the body of Christ. That's our moonshot. It's such a big thing, you can't just get there in one shot. And so NASA did first was the, the, the Mercury phase. And in the Mercury phase it was, can we put a human being in space and actually bring him back safely? That was the only goal of the Mercury phase. And they did seven shots. And uh, you know, they put a guy, Alan Shepard was the first guy to go up, and remember that guy? He came back. And, and in the Mercury phase, phase um, it was, uh, can we bring him back safely? Now actually, those guys were in their space, they didn't actually even do anything. In fact, sometimes they sent a monkey. Because it was just, see, can life exist out there? And I would say that in the first 4,000 people in this church that we sent out to do the peace plan, to plant churches and equip leaders and assist the poor and all those things, um, they, were, they, were our, they were our guinea pigs. And I, I, you know, we didn't accomplish a whole lot with the first three or 4,000 people. But we did bring them all back safely, fortunately. <laughs> we, all, we got them all back. I'm glad for that. You know? I think Russia sent a few cosmonauts out that didn't actually come back. But uh, we, we got them all back safely. But we learned, as I said, thousands of ways that don't work on the mission field. The whole idea was, can you send average, normal, average members of a church to go plant a church somewhere and equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate them? Can you do this with normal people in your church? And, and we began sending them out. And, and they really were wonderful guinea pigs. They all came back. We didn't get a whole lot accomplished in the early days. And we learned thousands of ways that don't work. 
But we did learn about a dozen that work incredibly well. Out of all those thousands of ways that didn't work, we learned about a dozen things that really, really do work on the mission field. And, and so that's kind of uh, what we did. And one of the things that we learned is it works best when you go directly to serve the church. Not, when, when people say, well, we work with the church, what it often means is we, have, we use the church to do our agenda. We, we use the church to do our agenda. Uh, and I would say, no, no, work with the church means you go and you serve that church and you build them up so that they are reaching their near neighbors, that they are reaching the tribes near them. In other words, well, here's an example. Years ago, um, when Billy Graham did the My Hope India Crusade, uh, many of you remember that, uh, it was Billy Graham's most successful crusade. He never preached. Instead, he hired Bollywood actors in, in India to make a drama, uh, sitcom, a miniseries, kind of like Roots, to present the gospel. And then they showed it on television all over India, and they had what were called Matthew groups, where you, Matthew invites the party to his house, and said, so you invite your friends to come watch this miniseries on Indian TV for three nights. Well over a million people, it may have been more than that, I know it was at least a million people, turned in cards saying, I prayed to receive Christ on the Billy Graham uh, My Hope campaign. How in the world do you follow up a million new believers? So Billy Graham called me up. Billy Graham's one of my nine mentors I've had in life. By the way, we need to pray for him. He's still, he's homebound. He's 96, just had his birthday a couple weeks ago. But he can't get out. Just pray for him. He's ready to go to heaven. And Billy called me up and said, Rick, uh, you know, uh, can you figure out how to do follow-up of a million people? I said, sure. So we took Mike Constance and David Sean and a bunch of other, our, our peace staff who run peace, and we sent them to India to train the trainers of the trainers of the trainers of the trainers of the trainers, and got a little curriculum and, and began to turn these converts into house churches. I don't know. We started somewhere over 30,000, 32,000 churches, house churches, uh, out, out of that, that movement. While we were doing that, we happened to run across a UUPG, unengaged, unreached people group out in a rural area of um, uh, India. And so we thought, great, they're here, we might as well go ahead. And, so we tried to start a church uh, in that UUPG. They wouldn't let us in, because we were Americans. We, could, we actually couldn't get in. And one of the reasons why many of these tribes have not been reached is because they're in difficult to reach, not just geographically, but politically, religion, things like that. So you know what we did? We went down the street, same street, down about 10 miles down that street, little road, and we planted a church in the nearest village. We trained them and raised them up, and then they went in and planted the church in the UUPG. Now, we know this. This is called near neighbor evangelism. But we just have to be reminded of. What we couldn't do, we, we would do. We're now doing this continent-wide in Africa. Um, you know, when we started the peace plan, and I started sending out these 26,000 people, one of the places we wanted to do is we wanted to, we wanted to go to a small country where we could drop a real big rock in a little pond and make a big difference. Could we build a national model 
of a church planting movement in a very small country. We were looking at Namibia, we looked at the Dominican Republic, we looked at a lot of small nations, and actually, we didn't choose Rwanda, Rwanda chose us. <clears throat> One day I got a letter from the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, he said, I've read your book, Purpose Driven Life, I'm a man of purpose, would you come help us build a purpose-driven nation after the genocide? And they were, we were given, I said, I'll come if the churches want us. So the first three times I went to Rwanda, I didn't say a word. I just sat, took a yellow pad and sat down and talked to all the churches. I said, if you want what we've got, you've got to organize it. We're gonna, we, we work not with the church. We work through in. We work for the church. We're, we're church to church. We don't only use the church. We love the church. And I believe that pastors are the most underrated change agents in the world because they're there in the village. They sleep in the same blankets as all the villagers do. They have instant credibility, and I don't have to pay them. I don't have to pay staff. If I work with them, I've got free staff all around the world. I could take you to 10 million villages in the world. The only thing in it is a church. Number one thing in any, in any village is, the first thing in it is the church. Second thing is a bar. They may not have a grocery store, post office, school. They got a church and maybe a bar. And, and so uh, we began working in Rwanda. Uh, I have sent over 1,500 members to Rwanda, just that one country alone. We sent the city planner of this city to Rwanda for a year. He planned all of the street lights and all that kind of stuff. We sent judges to train judges. We sent uh, police to train police. We sent nurses, hundreds of nurses to train nurses. We sent farmers to train how to double your crops and on and on and on. <clears throat> and out of that, Rwanda, if you've been following it, is incredibly growing. In the, 10, the 12 years that we've been in the peace plan in Rwanda, uh, UN statistic, my, not my statistic, one million out of poverty. It's a country of 10 million people, one million out of poverty. For the last three years, Rwanda's been named the safest country in Africa, three years in a row. Um, we have... Uh, when, when the genocide hit, there were a million orphans left in Rwanda. Because so many men and women, you know, 800,000 million, 800, people were killed in 100 days in the 94 genocide. Left a million orphans in a country of 10 million people. And the president came and he said, will Saddleback help us with the, with the orphan problem? I said, sure. You just need to understand we don't believe in orphanages. He goes, well, great, we don't either. I said, that word is not in the Bible. It's a Western idea and you, there are 136 million orphans in the world. You couldn't make enough orphanages to care them all. Orphans don't need an or institution. They need a family. Ask any orphan, would you rather be in a family or in an orphanage? None of them will choose an institution. And in the list of 100 things to do with orphans, I can give you 99 other things to do before you do build an orphanage. We like to build. So I said, we don't believe in orphanages. In fact, we'd like to shut them all down. And the, the president goes, great, let's work on it. So using the Ministry of Health and the government and Saddleback Church, we began systematically teaching churches adoption and foster care and on and on and on. In this church, our church has a goal of 1,000 adopted. We've already passed 500 families have adopted in this church. 500 families have adopted. And, and so we began systematically moving down. Last year, 
we were down to four orphanages left in the entire nation, and we closed down the biggest one. We're now down to three. And by the end of hopefully next year, no, 2018, Rwanda will be the first nation in the world with no orphanages. None. Now, there is no organization that can do that. You can only do it if you mobilize churches because there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them in lots of areas. Now, <clears throat> let me give you just real quickly here um, why I believe that we're going to have to mobilize local churches to finish the task. I want you to keep doing what you're doing, but I would also like for you to also help start mobilizing local churches. Ephesians 1.22, there on your outline, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and gave him this authority for the benefit of the church. It's for his church. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave itself up for him to belong to God. Christ used the word to make the church clean by washing. Ephesians 5.29, Christ cares for the church, which is his body. Now, I know some people read stuff like that and go, well, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the invisible church. A lady asked me, told me that day, she said, I, I don't go to church. I'm a part of the invisible church. I said, where do you give your invisible tithe? Where do you do your invisible ministry? What invisible small group are you in that you get your fellowship? Where, where, where's your invisible, uh, you know, worship in the body of Christ? You know, it's like a, a, a bee saying, I don't want to have a hive. Or a, a soldier saying, I don't want to have a platoon. Or a tuba player saying, I don't want to be in an orchestra. It's nonsense. We were made for connection. You can, there are 58 commands in the Bible you cannot fulfill unless you're part of a local church. 58. Christ died for the church. Now, the word church is used, obviously, universally and locally. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's used universally about four times. Every other time, it's talking about a specific congregation. The church at Lydia's house, the church in Corinth, the church that meets in the home, and on and on and on. So it's clear from this passage that nothing matters more to God than his church. He wanted a family. That's why the whole universe exists. God wanted a family, and that family is the church. Now, I love Peterson's paraphrase of Ephesians 1.23 in the message. He says, the church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. If God has called you to serve in a church, don't step down to become the president of the United States because this is going to last everything else. Now, the church has eight advantages that we don't have any other way in our, in our ministries. So let me just give them to you. I'm going to write them down real quick. Okay, number one, uh, the church has the largest participation. The largest participation. Uh, there are about 2.3 billion believers. Now, they're not all our kind believers, but they would say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. You know, let me put this in perspective. There are about 600 million Buddhists in the world. 600 million. There are about 800 million Hindus in the world. There are about 1.5 maybe billion Muslims in the world, 14 million Jews. 
but there are about 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Now, you say, well, they're not all our kind of Christian. Right, but if you said, okay, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Yes. Do you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose on, on resurrection? Yes. Do you believe he's coming back one day? Yes. Then we're on the same team. If you love Jesus, we're on the same team. You're certainly not a Muslim. And, and, and so, what does that mean? It means one out of every three planet persons on this planet would say, I would label myself as a Christian, as a Christian. So we have the largest participation. The church has a bigger army than the United States. In fact, the church is bigger than the United States. The church is bigger than China. The church is bigger than India. The church is almost bigger than China and India put together. We should never apologize for the church. We are the single biggest organization on the planet. We're bigger than the United Nations. We speak more languages than the United Nations. We're in more nations than the United Nations. So we have this participation, Ephesians 3, 10, though Christians like yourselves, through Christians like yourselves, gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. It's the largest force on earth. And we cannot simply ignore it over here if we're gonna finish the task. We gotta figure out how to mobilize normal people in normal churches to get out there. Okay, we have the largest participation. Number two, we have the widest distribution. The, we, the church has the widest distribution. The church was global long before, 200 years before anybody else even used the term global, globalization. The church is truly the only global organization. All of the franchises of Starbucks and Walmarts and McDonald's and Colonel Sanders and everybody else put together are nothing compared to the distribution channel of the church. I, one, one time President uh, Bush asked me to be the closing speaker at the Global Summit on Malaria. And I said, well, I'll come uh, if you'll let me bring pastors from Africa. Because I want to show you, you can't solve any global problem without the local church. For instance, if you had the cure for AIDS right now, we still couldn't get it to everybody. The problem would be distribution. But I can take you to 10 million villages, the only thing in it's a church. So we are the only distribution channel. Outside of the, of the capital, in many countries, the only social organization there is, is the church. We're it, we're it. We have greater distribution than anybody. We don't have to apologize to anybody for, for doing this. You know, when the church, or the government tells the church how to do healthcare, are you kidding me? The church has been doing healthcare for 2,000 years. We invented healthcare. A lot of people don't know, the church invented the hospital, not the government, not businesses. We, we did it. We invented the hospital. The church invented it. Why? Because we served Jesus Christ who said twice he went into every village preaching, teaching, and healing. We have a threefold ministry, preaching, evangelism, teaching, discipleship, healing, health care. God doesn't just care about getting your soul to heaven. He cares about your mind, your body, and your soul. And that's why you go into almost any country in the world, the first church, I mean the first school and the first hospital in almost every country in the world were started by the church. 
Not business, not government. We invented it. And, and so we have the widest distribution. Colossians 1.6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. We're in every nook and cranny of the, of the planet. And if you don't believe that, whenever there's a national disaster, who shows up? The church. Why? Because the church is the community. The government talks about community development. You can't even do it in most of the world without the church. We have the largest participation, the widest distribution. Number three, we have the longest continuation. The longest continuation. We've been around 2,000 years. We're not exactly a fly-by-night operation. Businesses come and go. Organizations come and go. NGOs come and go. Nations come and go. How many nations are not here from 2,000 years ago? We have the longest continuation. Why? Why has it survived? Because the church is indestructible. It is the only thing that's going to last on this planet. Nothing else. If Jesus Christ hasn't come back in a thousand years, we don't know when he's coming back. The Bible says three times in Matthew 25, be ready, be ready, be ready. So he could come back tomorrow, should be ready. But if Jesus hadn't come back in a thousand years, things are going to be a lot different. I don't know the future, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this, there won't be a Starbucks, there won't be a Microsoft, there won't be an Apple in a thousand years, there won't be a Walmart, shoot, there may not be a United States of America. Why? Because nothing man-made lasts. All the other, where's the Hittite Empire? Where's the Assyrian Empire? Where's the Ugaritic Empire? They're gone, they're gone. Nothing man-made lasts. But if Jesus hadn't come back in a thousand years, I'll tell you one thing that will be here, a church. Churches will still be here, why? Because Jesus made the universe for the church. It's his body, his bride, his family. So we have the longest continuation. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the powers, the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's gonna outlast. Did you know the church will even outlast the universe? The Bible says one day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but God's family is going to go on forever. Number four, the fourth thing that we have that nobody else has is the fastest expansion. We have the fastest expansion. And what do I mean by that? I'm just saying that it grows faster than anything else. If you're going to try to take on a, like a pandemic, you know what a pandemic is. It's an epidemic over continents. So it makes it a pandemic. AIDS is a pandemic. Saddleback has AIDS as one of our seven signature issues. Well, in countries where, like Botswana, where 30% had AIDS a few years ago, that's a nation falling into the ocean, crumbling. The only thing that can stop a, a something growing faster is something that's growing faster. What's growing faster than AIDS? The church. We don't realize it because in America and in Europe, it has slowed to a halt and even declined in many places. But in many, many places in Asia, in Africa, Latin America, it's exploding with growth. Growing far faster than any, anything else. And so we have the fastest expansion. Now that happened in Acts. The Bible tells us the believers rapidly multiplied. That's exponential, Acts 6.1. But then in Acts 16 it says now the churches are growing daily in numbers. They're planning on and on and on. Number five the, five, the fifth thing that we have nobody else has is the highest motivation, which is love. 
The reason we do the Great Commission is because we believe in the Great Commandment. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you why. Because love, the Bible says, never gives up. If you're doing what we're doing for any other motivation than love, you're going to get tired and quit. But love lasts. Love never gives up. Love keeps going. You know, I have learned, now having been in ministry for over 45 years, that the why is always more important than the how. Why you do what you do is more important than how you do it. And when you figure out the why, God will always show you how. And if you got, want God's blessing on your life, it's not about the how, it's about the why. Because God looks at the heart. And he wants to know, why are you doing what you are doing? So we have the, we have the highest motivation. Number six, we have the strongest authorization. We have the strongest authorization, which means we've been commanded by God to do this. This is not something that we just think up. That's what we're here for. Finishing the task is the commandment of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19, 20, the Great Commission. All authority is given to me. Nobody else can say that except the church. Government can't say all authority is given to me. All authority is given to me, therefore go and make disciples. We have the strongest authorization. Now we know that it, God doesn't sponsor failures. And with authority comes power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So we not only have the authorization, we've got the power uh, uh, to do that. And in Ephesians 3.20, notice there it says, each of, it says, um, with God's power working within us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine to him be the glory in heaven. And then number seven, what we have is the simplest administration. The simplest administration. I'll give you an example of this. And what we mean by that is, is we've got every member a minister. First Peter 4.10, each of you has been blessed with one of God's many wonderful gifts to be used in service of others, so use your gift well. Every member is a minister. And whatever you want to grow, listen, guys, whatever you want to grow, decentralize it. The more you decentralize it, the more it'll grow. The more you allow more people to be involved, and if you can involve multiple churches and multiple ministries and, and all of the members of those churches, you would mobilize an army. The army of Christ, you know, 100 million people easily volunteer every day in the church, probably a whole lot more than that. Nothing compares to that anywhere else. And so if we're doing Christian work, we should be using Christians. Where are they? They're in the churches. And as a simple administration, what's the simplest administration means? If, you got, if you're gifted to do it, do it. You're it. We call it your principle. Come, so somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Rick, we need this ministry. I said, great, you're it. Well, don't we have to organize it? And play? No, no, you're it. So, well, well, what do I do? Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to put it in the bulletin, announce we're starting this new ministry, and you, you, you show up and organize. Well, I'm not an organizer. Okay, then here's what you do. We're going to put it in the bulletin, announce this, and you pray and pray and pray and that a leader will show up to take it over. Because if they don't show up, guess what? You're it. <laughs> yeah, you're it. Now, people say, but they'll make a lot of mistakes. Some 
people in ministry don't trust the church. You know why Saddleback Group? Because I do. I trust pastors. I trust them with my life. And I, with all their flaws, I trust pastors. Do you? I trust pastors of little churches, big churches, and all in between. And I trust members. Well, they're going to make mistakes. Well, I don't want to make all the mistakes myself. I'm going to spread the blame around. I want you to make some of the mistakes. I, I don't want to be the only guy. I'm, I'm going to make mistakes. So why wouldn't you want anybody else making them too? Which, by the way, is the only way to become a leader. You cannot take a class to become a leader. You can't take a course to become a leader. There's only one way to let people become leaders. Let them lead. They don't, lead it. They don't learn leadership in a course or class. They learn it by leading. And, and so you, you mobilize your members for ministry. Going back to that story, I said... President Bush asked me to be the closing speaker, so he let me bring some pastors. So I, I, I got up in front of, it wasn't a big crowd, it was about this size of crowd. And, but it was movers and shakers in the world. Bill and Melinda Gates and Rupert Murdoch and you know, people leading major corporations. And I stood up and I said this. I have been to Davos four times. I've spoken at the World Economic four times and I will tell you this. You can't solve any world problem without the church. You cannot solve any global problem without the church. Why? Because we have the greatest distribution, the simplest administration, these, these eight things. I said, let me give you an example. And I put up a map of Rwanda. And I said, here are the five um, provinces of Rwanda. There's a north, south, east, west, and a central, kind of like Washington, D.C., Kigali. I said, uh, when the president asked us to come and do a peace plan there, I said, well, look, we got five letters. You got five continent, uh, five uh, provinces. Tell us what you want done, and we'll just do it where you want it. But we're going to do it in for the church, and the church is going. We're going to train the church to do it in your community. We're not actually going to do it. By the way, you know that's what the Great Commission says: teach them to do all the things the command. It doesn't say do it for them. That's a fundamental shift you need to make. The Great Commission is fundamentally a training commission. Teach them to do. We don't do anything in the peace plan. We train churches to do it. I used to let our people, I, I used to let our dentists, for instance, go across the border and pull teeth. And it made them feel so great and made them feel like a hero and felt so great. I pulled all these teeth. Who's going to pull them the next 364 days? So I don't let dentists go to Tijuana and pull teeth. I let dentists go to Tijuana and teach other people how to pull teeth. And then it's being done for 365 days. We don't go and do anything overseas. These 26, we go over and train the church how to do it. And then it lasts. Here's the big question you need to ask. Who's the hero in your ministry? Who's the hero? Who gets the credit in your ministry? We don't want any credit coming to Saddleback. We want it going to that local indigenous church that's reaching out to others. Who's the hero? You know, I tell this to the guys, you know, in weddings, having done 45 years of weddings, I tell groom, I say, groom, you're going to have a wedding. If you want to have a happy wedding, you need to realize two things. Number one, that in every wedding, the star of the show is the bride. Okay, she's the star of the show. The co-star is the mother of the bride. <laughs> Everybody else in a wedding is supporting cast, including you. And if you understand that, you're going to have a happy wedding. The glory always goes to the bride, as it should. 
the glory should always go to the bride. Does it go to that, are you raising up? You know what I've discovered? The more I honor the local church around the world, that little, tiny, weak local church, the more I honor the local church, the more God anoints my ministry. Christ died for the church. The bride gets the glory, not me, not our organization. They get the glory. So we make sure it all, it's in, by, through, to, for them. So I stood up and I said, okay, here's the five provinces, and what do you want us to do? President Kagame said, well, I want you to do healthcare in the Western province. Two million people, one doctor. Actually, I had three hospitals, but they're not staffed. They're empty. They're buildings. So I, I put up a map of Western province in front of these 400 people. I said, here are the three hospitals in Western Rwanda. Now, uh, that's not good health care because Rwanda's mountains, it's a two days walk to any hospital. If you've got diarrhea and you're sick and you feel terrible, you don't want to walk two days. And when you get there, there's no guarantee you're going to get in the hospital. And there's certainly no guarantee you're going to see a doctor because there isn't one. You're probably a volunteer. And you've got to bring your own food and you've got to cook your own food. That's not good health care. Everybody agree with that? They said, you're right, that's not good health care. I said, by the way, two of those three hospitals, they're Christian. They're church-based hospitals. So you wouldn't have two-thirds of those, even if, not that good, but it's better than nothing. You wouldn't have two-thirds of your hospitals if it weren't for the church. 25% of all the health care in Africa is by the, Af by the Catholics. You take Catholics out of Africa, you have broken the back of health care in Africa. So two out of three were, were Christian uh, thanks. Then I put up a second slide to show these 400 people. And it, it had 18 dots on it. I said, here are the 18 clinics in Western Rwanda. 18 clinics. And I said, uh, now that's better because it's only one day's walk. But I said, I've been, if you've ever been in these clinics, uh, you know, developing country, clinic, a clinic may mean a bottle of aspirin on the shelf. I said, I've been in those 18 clinics. I said, I walked into one of them, had a microscope from the 1950s and nothing else. I walked into another one, it was at a, had a, a lady was literally, about, it's about 10 feet wide, lady was given on, on the mat on the floor, given birth, basically it was just a roof overhead, nothing else. But I said, it's better than nothing. I said, by the way, of these 18 clinics, 16 of them are church-based. So you wouldn't even have those because we invented healthcare. I said, now watch this. And I put up a third map, slide, PowerPoint slide, Western province, and it was covered with dots. Dot, 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 I said, here are the 867 churches in Western province of Rwanda. Now, where would you like to get your health care? Two days walk, one day's walk, or five minutes away? The place is silent. Melinda Gates, Bill Gates' wife, gets up, comes and says, Rick, I get it. The church could be the distribution center for health care. I said, Melinda, it has been for 2,000 years. It's a little late to the party. We have the biggest distribution and we have the simplest administration. So I said this. I said, I'm going to prove it to you that I can do it faster and cheaper through local churches than you can do it through your government or your NGO. So I went back to Rwanda and I, I asked, I said, guys, you're, you're on, you pastors, you're all in villages, your village will never have a doctor. Your village will never have a doctor. There aren't enough doctors to put a doctor in every village. So you're never gonna have a doctor. So we're gonna have to teach some people in your congregation 
to actually care for people. This is medical evangelism. And I said, any of you want to be guinea pigs? 18 brave pastors raised their hand. I said, okay, pick two people that you want to train to be the country doctors in your church. This is the simplest administration. And so they picked 18 each as 36, and then actually two Muslim imams came to us and said, would you train us? And we said, sure. I said, now, you realize we're Christian. We, we believe Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And, and, and you're welcome to take the training, but we're not gonna change our Bible studies and start with worship. No, no, that's fine, we'll, we'll come on in. So we let the Muslims pick out for us. We had 40 people in the first group. And we started teaching, we taught them simple stuff. How to wash your hands. How to hang the sheets out to dry in the sun so that the, uh, there's no um, uh, sanitation, so it sanitizes them. Uh, how, to, how to do sanitation in the house. And then teaching them simple stuff like how to dress a wound, how to stitch a wound, how to set a bone. They're learning so fast, pretty soon we're teaching them how to ad administer ARVs, antiretrovirals, which is a very complex protocol for people with AIDS. But they're picking it up. They're not dumb. They just need training. And we said, okay, now you're going to visit seven families a week. And you're going to go visit seven families a week. And, and you're, you're like a house call doctor. And if nobody's sick, then you sit down and you teach them a little basic lesson. And we gave them some basic lessons on the Bible and on health. And then next week, you got some more. Well, then we took those 40 people. He said, okay, you're going to help us train 40 more. And we doubled it. Three months later, we went to 80. Three months later, we went to 160. Three months later, we went to 320. This is called exponential growth. How much have I spent on this? Nothing. These people are volunteering. They're in the church. 640. And on and on and on. I, I went back to Kigali, I mean to, uh, to the Karanji district a couple years ago and went to see the progress. I went into a rally, held a rally, for over 5,000 trained healthcare workers in churches, in churches. Who's getting the glory? Not Saddleback, not the Rwanda government, that local church. Do you think that makes Jesus happy? Of course it does. Now, you, nobody could do it faster, nobody could do it cheaper. We've got to figure out how to do this. Finally, number eight, the, we have the greatest conclusion. And that means we already know how history is going to end. We know it's inevitable, it's unavoidable that God is in control. This gospel will be preached to all the world. There will be somebody from every tribe and nation in heaven. The only question is, are we gonna do it in our generation or are we gonna kick the can down the road to the next generation? The whole purpose of this conference, the whole purpose of finishing the task movement is to do it in our generation. I don't wanna kick the can down the road. And you're gonna hear some amazing reports from some people who've been here in past conferences Paul Eshelman is one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met in my life. You're going to hear his reports. And you're going to hear how we are systematically taking hundreds of these tribes off. We've already taken off many, many tribes off the list from when we first started this. And it's going down and down and down and down and down. And one day, we're going to get to zero. And that's our goal. That's our goal. 
Now let me close, but just, I don't have time, my time's up, so just write this down. A couple things we need to do if we're gonna mobilize churches. I'm talking about mobilizing churches. And maybe you've never thought about your ministry doing that. But a couple things we're gonna have to do is, is this. Number one is we have to change the way we measure success. We have to change the way we measure success. We have to rewrite the rules. We have to change what churches count and what churches reward. Whatever gets rewarded gets repeated. And here's the problem today. You know what's being rewarded in American Christianity today? Size. The size of a church gets rewarded. Size is the least of my concerns. Church can be big and strong or big and flabby. Small and strong or small and wimpy. Big is not necessarily better. Small is not necessarily better. Better is better. If I were still pastoring that church in Redwood Valley in that barn, I wouldn't be having 500 people showing up because there are only 500 people in the, in the village. But it could be strong, it could be healthy. You don't have to be big to be healthy. You just have to be healthy. And you have to have bifocal vision. And we rechange what we reward. You know, a lot of these, there's these magazines that now produce the, every year the 100 largest churches or the 100 fastest growing churches. I've always hated those things. Why? Because we reward the wrong thing. It's like I said, rewarding an army for how many people are sitting in the cafeteria eating. That doesn't tell me the strength of your church. I'd rather start 10 churches of 100 people than have one church of 1,000 any day. Any day. Saddleback has started, I couldn't count the number of churches we started. When I started this church, we said we're going to start at least one church a year. So at the end of the first year, we started first church. End of the second year, we started second church. Third year, we started three. One year, we started 17. We went 13 years without a building, and we'd already started maybe 50, 60 churches without a building. You don't have to have a building to grow a church. I grew a saddleback to over 10,000 before we built our first building. We went 13 years without a building. A church is not a building. But you, you, we've got to stop rewarding. What I'd like to see a reward is Let's start rewarding the churches that are planning new churches. That, by the way, is the mark of maturity. People say, we got a mature church. Have you ever planted a church? No, then you're not mature. Oh, no, we're a very mature church. You have any babies? No, then you're not mature. The mark of maturity is the ability to reproduce. When a little girl has the ability to reproduce, she's now a woman. When a little boy has the ability to reproduce, he's now a man. Once they go through puberty, they are physically mature. And the same is true for a church. A church is not mature until it's having babies, until it's planting churches, until it's reproducing. So we put the reproducing DNA in all of our churches. We gotta reward that. And I'd like to see a list of the 100 churches in America that started the most churches last year. Sent out the most teams to start churches last year. Reward that. Whatever gets rewarded gets repeated. So we have to change that around from the size to reproduction. And then one other thing is we need to stop enabling local churches to outsource their missions. We need to stop enabling local churches to outsource their mission. I got six or seven more, but I'm out of time, so I'll just end with this. 
Anytime you take responsibility for somebody, you take it away from them. And what we're doing today is we're making it easy for churches to pay, pray, and stay out of the way. That is not the Great Commission, friend. A church is not fulfilling the Great Commission if it's paying, praying, and staying out of the way. I grew up in a denomination where mission education was this. Pray, 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 pray. Study, 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 study about missions. Give, 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 give. Have an annual conference, give, 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 give. Maybe someday go. When I started Saddleback, we flipped it on the end, and I just said, go. Don't pray. Don't give. Don't study. Just go. Just go. Just go. Just go. And when they come back, and you've had 26,000 people come back, guess what? They want to pray. They want to study. They want to give, because they went. Do you realize I pastor a church of missionaries? When you, when you have over 26,000 people in your church and, and you're preaching to them and they've all been overseas, they're not worried about what's my next tennis break gonna look like. It kind of changes your values. So, let me summarize. This is the most important thing we could ever do. Finish the task. Finish the task. History depends on it. There's no way we're going to do it by ourselves. We, we're, this is a good group. But we need thousands of times this size. And there's already an organization out there that we could mobilize. They're called churches. And we don't have to pay their staff. They're called pastors. And they volunteer. And you can do stuff faster and cheaper if we mobilize them. So I'm just begging us to add that little component to what we're already doing. Don't stop what you're doing. Don't stop what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. But figure out a way to start helping churches do it too. And remember who gets the glory. Let's bow our heads. Father, I love these people. Thank you for their commitment to you commitment to evangelism, to the great commission, the great commandment. And Lord, may you use this week to rock our worlds. Help us to think some new questions that give us new answers, that cause us to be mobilized for the global glory of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...